podcast one production. Bill Nye is a science communication phenomenon, one of the world's best-known talkers, lovers and spreaders of the gospel of science, multi-Emmy award-winning Netflix superstar, but it wasn't always that way. He was a highly successful mechanical engineer born of incredible parents before a love for the stage and performance took him in a new direction. I asked some big questions. Well, in fact, some young kids asked some really big questions of the amazing Bill Nye. If I was to tell you I was interviewing William Sanford Nye, you might pause for a second before it dawned on you, but if I said I was about to chat with Bill Nye, the science guy, you would know exactly what I mean. For decades, he's been amusing kids and adults around the world and bringing science to the masses. William Sanford Nye, welcome to The Big Questions. It's so good to be here. Can I start with Sanford? That's a, a rocking middle name, doesn't it? Well, the deal. It came with. It's an old family name. My uh, beloved uncle was Sanford, and uh, we all called him Bud. Because when you're a little kid, Sanford's a tough one. Mm. When, you're, when you're a toddler, it's very difficult. When you, my, my middle name is Barrington. And as a young, oh, sure it is. You know, it is, and as, again, a family name. And as a youngster, when I got that, I... I didn't like Barrington, and my friends hassled me a bit. It was a little bit too fancy pants, and later in life, I fell in love with it. Did you take an instant shine to Sanford, or for a while, was it an uneasy Yeah, thing? yeah it, was, uh, it, was, it was uneasy. It was troubling. Yes, it, was, uh, it uh, had a highfalutin. Uh, it was it's just not, I didn't feel it was me. But now, now I embrace it. And on the topic of your childhood, your mum, a World War II codebreaker... So it is said. Now, you, everybody understands. So uh, my mother went to Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, in the United States. <clears throat> and you may not have heard of Goucher, but you may have heard of Johns Hopkins. Yes, absolutely. Right. So back in the day, uh, Hopkins was where men went to school and women went to Goucher. Goucher is now co-ed, mm-hmm. men and women. And my mother would have remarked, you know, it's gone to hell but because they let boys in. But... The dean of students at Goucher College was the, the first cousin of what used to be called the Secretary of War. Mm-hmm. Henry Stimson was Dorothy Stimson's first cousin, and he apparently said to Dorothy, do you have any women that can come work on this thing? I can't tell you what it is. So my mom and several other gals from her graduating class were uh, recruited to work on the Enigma Code, the mythic wow. Nazi. Well, and so my whole life, nobody knew what they did. And they, uh, uh, people would ask, you know, people of that age uh, would socialize by saying, what did you do during the war? What, did, what were you mm-hmm. doing during the war? And my mother would say, can't talk about it. Ha, 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 ha. I just can't. I can't talk about it. They were declassified in 1992. Oh. 50 flipping years after they were. Just holding that secret for or, 50 or whatever. years. And so they, the thing is, my mom was graduated in the spring of 1942, right after the war started for the United States, yeah. uh, which was on December 7th, which is still a big day in the United yeah. States of 1941. Anyway, so she did something. Well, uh, coming out here in October, I guess a week from today, will be a book called um, Code Girls. I had nothing to do with it, but the woman who wrote it just did a lot of research and mentions my mother 
and she worked in neutral shipping, whatever that is. So apparently the Nazis had it set up where uh, ships that would appear to be neutral were actually resupplying U-boats in mm-hmm. the North Atlantic. And so uh, she did something. She said there was a big map, and uh, but that's about all she said. And they, they had a party, and there were seven of them there, I think, at that wow. time. Yeah, it was, you know. But anyway, my dad, if you're looking for ways to spend your uh, summer vacation, my dad was trying to get money for their nest egg. Do you use that expression? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so he took a job on Wake Island. Now, the United States Navy now has a, a uh, division, part of it's called the Seabees, and they're the construction crew. Mm-hmm. If the Navy wants to build a bridge, if the Navy wants to build an airstrip, the the CB show up and C and B. But before that, the U.S. Navy just hired private contractors. So my dad was a construction worker on Wake Island, which is in the middle of Pacific Ocean nowhere, and they were bombed on December 8th because it's across the international dateline, as are we, from uh, where most people in the U.S. live, and... Uh, they fought back for two weeks. They were captured on Christmas Eve, and he spent four years as a prisoner of war. Mm. And I tell everybody, if you get a chance to be a prisoner of war, you know, don't do it. I mean, it sounds cool. <laughs> sounds like an adventure overseas. It sounds like it really sucked. It sounds like a real drag. But he lived through it. My parents got married. Here I am. Now, looking back in hindsight, was there anything about growing up with your mum in particular, any qualities in her that make it obvious she would have been a great Nazi codebreaker? Well, when you say Nazi codebreaker, let's watch our adjectives. Mm-hmm. She was <laughs> working for the Allies. Right. <laughs> and great, great uh, at so, trying to break the codes of the Nazis. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, uh, well, I'll tell you. Um, Johns Hopkins Magazine would come, Alumni Magazine would come to the house every month. And in the back, there's a bunch of riddles and brain teasers mm-hmm. and uh, problems. And we would agonize over those as a family. And then do your parents do this? My parents would sit around and write limericks. Mm-hmm. Is that something you do normally? Absolutely. Sure it is. So they, they took joy in words and the rhythm. And the, myth, the family myth is that she was recruited because she was good at math and science. My grandfather was an organic chemist. Mm who at that time was working in the city of Baltimore. Do you, are you of an age where you remember bottle caps had corks under underneath? Sure. The, he had the patent on that adhesive. Wow. This company. Well, I mean, he worked for the man, yeah, which yeah. was Crown Cork and Seal mm. back in the day. And so what I mean is it's reasonable that my mother was good at math and science. That's all. It was, it was reasonable. A, it was only through limericks that I realized that Nantucket was actually a, a real place on Earth. Yes, yes. Another story. Now, I was, I, was in, uh, I was on Kangaroo Island. Yes. Last week. Beautiful. It is beautiful. And did I see pelicans? You may well have. I saw pelicans. Yeah. Southern hemispherical pelicans. Absolutely. So behold the pelican. Mm-hmm. His beak holds more food than his bellycan. Absolutely. Within his beak, he holds food for a week. I don't know how in the helican. <laughs> you go on to be not 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 one of the great writers of limericks, but a mechanical engineer at Boeing, Bill Nye, where you invented a hydraulic resonance suppressor tube for use on seven four sevens. Now, obviously, Bill, I know what a hydraulic resonance suppressor tube is. Well, of but, course, you but, work but in radio. If yeah. any if anyone listening on this podcast <laughs> doesn't know, 
what exactly, just say hypothetically, if I was an idiot, how would you describe to me a hydraulic resonance suppressor tube for use on 747s? And the word invent is kind of an exaggeration. I engineered, I proposed to my boss that we get rid of this thing by adding a tube, and he went for it. So even on, or maybe most especially on airliners, there are test pilots these are not guys that take the airplane up into the, where you can see stars and spiral out of control and have to eject out of an ejection seat. Mm-hmm. They're just flying the plane to see if it works the way everybody hopes it would. And so most pilots were not bothered by this, but there was a British test pilot who was just bugged by this little, this little, very subtle buzz in the yoke. The yoke is the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. And the 747 was the first commercial airliner that's all fly-by hydraulic. In other words, there is no direct mechanical connection between the pilot and the control surfaces, the rudder, aileron, elevator, you guys call the tailplane. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this buzz was in there, and what I did is I, I – they, this is a problem they give to the young guy, okay, mm-hmm. when you can still do your math. And we made the pressure wave destructively interfere with itself by adding a length of hydraulic tube that was tuned to a quarter of the wavelength of the bzzz. Mm-hmm. And so it worked. And so it's still flying around, but it added weight to the airplane. Never supposed to add weight to the airplane. Evil. But, but I, you I, did after get rid of that. three years, they did. we did. You got yeah. rid of that annoying buzz, and that was the important yeah. thing. But this is interesting. So as someone who's clearly talented in that field, you come from a family with great scientific lineage, you're working at Boeing, things are going well there, you've fashioned the hydraulic resonance suppressor, but there's something inside you that wants to write and perform and move away into the field of comedy performance? Was it a nagging, gnawing thing that kept you up at night? How did this come about? No, not really. Although in my high school yearbook, as we say, a friend of mine, a guy who went on to become a veterinarian, said he wrote that I had mastered the art of stage comedy. I was in Taming of the Shrew. Mm. which I think a lot of high school students are in. Mm -hmm. And I was funny enough. But then after I was graduated from college, I got a job at Boeing. I was working in the city of Seattle, which is on uh, Canadians called the left coast. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., we call it the west coast. (laughs) I'm serious. And uh, uh, a bunch of new friends, people I hardly knew very well, but people I crossed paths with, various uh, pubs, suggested that I enter the Steve Martin lookalike contest. Wow. Now, Steve Martin is, to me, brilliant. And so I entered, and due respect to the other contestants, I won. I dominated. (laughs) I didn't really work. Crushed it. I crushed it in Seattle. Now, uh, I did not advance beyond that. I did not win the national contest, Mm -hmm. which was won by a guy from Nashville, Tennessee, where there's a lot of musicians, a lot Mm -hmm. of guitar pickers Mm -hmm. in Nashville. And he could play the banjo for crying out loud. Mm. And uh, so he went on, to, he, but nothing, he didn't do too much after that. Anyway, after I did that bit, people wanted me to be Steve Martin at events to do Steve Martin's bits. <clears throat> and that was okay, but it's not really satisfying. You want to do your own hilarious mm. comedy gags. And so I tried to do stand up comedy for a number of years. I middled, for those of you uh, familiar with the showbiz lingo. So you weren't the opening act, you weren't the headline, just filling that crucial middle middle session of the night. The MC, the middle, the headliner. Yeah, Mm. I was the middle for a little while. I never, you guys really, I was never very good. But Yeah, we picked up on that. But you get get through to that, the breakthrough, Bill Nye, the science guy, television show. And we're talking here a phenomenon 
nominated for 23 Emmy Awards, winning 19 of those 23 nominations. Does the novelty of winning an Emmy ever wear off? Around the uh, 12th, 13th, you going, yeah, okay. We'll see. We'll see. Not yet. <laughs> so, you know, I'm working on a new show now, Bill Nye Saves the World, mm. on Netflix. How hard could that be? It's, you know, half hour. That should be enough. Yeah, so we were nominated uh, as writers mm. and went to the Emmy, again, Emmy party again this year. It was about uh, three weeks ago. And it's very exciting. You, we always say to your, ourselves, you don't win the first year. Mm. Don't win the first year. So, But we were there. I wore a tux and a bow tie. And uh, just it's my policy. I'll just tell you, everybody, I also I wore a shirt. It was a- <laughs> it's just my thing. It's just, maybe it's not for everybody. Let me ask you, you you're coming to Australia for the first time uh, to, to do your stage show. And we Australians, we, we love science. We feel we have a proud scientific tradition, multiple Nobel Prize winners, an Aussie invented Wi-Fi. Australians were the first to uh, invent wine in a cardboard box, not a bottle. We've <laughs> solved some of the big problems. That is it's huge. It's huge. What can the science-loving Australian public expect from Bill Nye on stage? Uh, well, I hope it's uh, entertaining, and I hope it gives you this perspective uh, that uh, you everybody is a scientist. Everybody makes observations. Everybody draws conclusions. Everybody at some level uses the scientific method to conduct his or her life on some level. But also uh, we'll talk about Mars and the significance, in my opinion, which, as you know, is correct, uh, the significance of finding life on another world. Hmm. And the two places that are logical to go looking right now is the planet Mars and uh, Europa, which is the moon of Jupiter, which discovered by Galileo. Mm. Moon of Jupiter was twice as much seawater as the Earth. If you have seawater for four and a half billion years, you know, stuff could happen. Mm. That's all we're saying. So, Australians, be very, very proud. You all announced that you're going to have your own space agency, mm. an official government space agency. And this is the best thing you can do. It's uh, It will uh, raise the level of academic achievement in Australia. It will attract people from around the world who work in space, uh, space-related hardware and uh, astronomy. And it will become a fantastic brand for the country. You know, people have mixed feelings about the United States, but NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, is the mm. best brand the U.S. has. Everybody respects what NASA does. It's interesting because some people would say, look, why should Australia bother with the space race? The U.S. is doing it. You know, Europe is doing it. But we play a crucial role even by dint of being in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, man, we? you cannot explore space without Canberra. You just can't. Mm. It's, uh, it is, it's key. It is really something, you guys, When you, if you ever go out to Canberra or Goldstone or Godroll Bank or one of the places in the, what we call the Deep Space Network, the DSN, <laughs> and somebody will say in the control room, yeah, tonight we're uh, receiving uh, signals from Juno. Juno is a spacecraft uh, entirely solar-powered that's orbiting Jupiter right now. And you go outside and you look up and the giant, flipping radio dish is pointed at the planet Jupiter. Like, it's that simple. It's just so you can't do it successfully uh, as a humankind could not do it without a telescopes and receivers in the Southern Hemisphere. 
And so I met, I was last week, as you all know, was the International Astronautical Congress in Mm. Adelaide. I saw many of you there. Hi. (laughs) No, it's a a weird little thing for people like me. But I met several Australians who presumed that you already had a space program, Mm. an official government space program. And the answer is you kind of, or Australia kind of did. But now it's going to be consolidated and it's going to be a fabulous thing. And I encouraged... uh, a couple of uh, members of parliament whom I met to just make sure you have a cool logo. It's really, it's really important. <laughs> we Don't might, mess with that. Take might, the time and get that right. We might get you to consult with us on that one, Bill. Um, and what, one thing oh, that, two pieces of advice, if uh, you, yes. unless you want to keep moving. No, no, on no. the logo, don't just say, well, let me see what so-and-so's kid did. That don't necessarily accept that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the other one is, well, we paid this consulting company hundreds of thousands of dollars to come up with this blue sphere. Okay. Just don't don't go either way. I'm speaking with Bill Nye, the science guy. One thing that is apparent, Bill, when you talk about these things is, is your passion for science. And in particular... You're genius at spreading excitement amongst children, and genius by, by a, a sure by a complete coincidence. And I, I this, not a word of this is a lie. About three weeks ago, my daughter, who's 12 years old in high school, Ellie came home, and they'd been watching some science videos at school. And she knows that I do a bit of talking about mathematics and all that publicly. And she said, "So, Dad, do you do you know Bill Nye, the science guy?" I said, "You're not going to believe this, Ellie." I'm interviewing Bill Nye, the science guy, in a couple of weeks. She asked, would it be all right if a couple of questions, she's sourced a couple of questions from her classmates. Sourced. She yeah. sourced some questions. Exactly. Have the, have the sourced questions been vetted? Yeah, I've vetted them. and Because that's that's a big word these days, <laughs> vetting. I I'm, love vetting. We've, we've vetted them. We had an entire committee on it. Well, I'm about to throw these at you. But first of all, how does it feel to, for you to know that here in Australia, in a classroom, in a school that you'll never visit, that you've never heard of, they're watching one of your Science Guy episodes? How does that make you feel, Bill? I say all the time, I try to get it. I, I don't think I get it. By that, I mean we did this show, the, my, the crew and I did this show in a warehouse in Seattle, Washington a very modest production. We would make anything. We have a a piece of lumber. We put yellow and black tape on it. And now it's a piece of lumber of science. And I mean, that was the, that was the budget, but uh, people all over the world watch the show. It is very gratifying. And I made the show. I wanted to make the show because I was very concerned about the direction humankind was going, especially my beloved native United States. I was just, Concerned? What are we doing? Where our transportation systems are so inefficient? In the United States, we had abandoned teaching the metric system, and uh, I've been just worried, man. And so, what enables a society to be successful and to compete to compete internationally, economically, is innovation, hmm. and to have innovation, be it in the United States, Canada, Australia, or I don't know if you've heard of it. There's an island. Uh, New Zealand, and what enables it to these governments to compete is science. So I am very gratified that people here watch and enjoyed the show. I put my heart and soul into it. Everybody on the crew did. Okay, first. And so it's really cool. First question. First Ellie, question for you, Billy. Me. Comes from Ellie. How old is the Earth, and how do we know how old it is? Oh uh, my goodness. 
So the Earth, we strongly believe, is four is um, four and a half billion. It could be four point six billion years old. The Sun is that the solar system is that old, and uh, the universe is thirteen point seven billion, thirteen point six billion. And we know this by studying the motion of stars. The age of the Earth, we infer from just a fantastic set of clues provided to us in nature. And uh, when I was in Adelaide, we went up to the new or new fossil beds that were discovered about 10 years ago. And you all pushed the origin of life back another 35 million years mm-hmm. into the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, you walk up to these slabs of stone, and there are impressions of ancient organisms, almost all of which are soft-bodied. And so life started about, as I say, 35 million years sooner than we, complex multicellular life, sooner than was previously inferred. And that discovery was made here in Australia. So Mm. what would we be doing if we were not uh, on this podcast right now? That's right. We'd be watching reruns of of CSI Perth. <laughs> Do they have that yet? No, they not, bust. It's, it's coming. It's it's the only one in the franchise they haven't got yet. It's the next next cab off the rank. It's got to be next. So science and the determining the age of the Earth, Ellie, is all about looking at these extraordinary clues. Most of which we find in the rocks, as they say in geology. Every rock tells a story. Mm-hmm. But when you turn over one of these rocks and there's an impression of this organism that died, that lived rather 530, 540 million years ago, Mm -hmm. million years ago, Mm -hmm. half a billion years ago, Mm -hmm. there's no other way for that pattern and that impression to get on that rock except there was something alive swimming around in an ancient sea. Mm -hmm. It's just like totally freaky. And so this is the process of science. This is when you find these clues, it's so compelling. When it comes to the age of the universe, we look at the light from distant stars that take it. Take it. Another question for you from Olivia. What color are atoms? Uh, that is a great question. I think I would start with nobody knows, except as we say in science, you don't see things. You see light bouncing off of things. So in a sense, atoms don't have a color, but in a sense, they have very specific colors. It depends how, how you literally look at it. Mm. For example, <clears throat> you may be sitting in a room with what we call fluorescent lights. So there's a gas in a tube, it's usually mercury vapor, that when you give it a jolt of electricity, electrons jump from one level to another and fall back down. In the case of mercury vapor, it's a charming cobalt kind of blue color. In the case of krypton gas, it's green. In the case of uh, neon, it's orange. The neon's a gas, or can be a gas. And so, in that sense, each atom has a very specific and different color. Each molecule has a very specific and different color. But you don't see anything until light bounces off of it. So it, it, it's, uh, it's both ways. Wonderful. Fabulous question. Oh, Fabulous. thank you. And a wonderful answer, Maya. So I, I, I love this. It's interesting, Bill, because you, you've, you've talked about your passion for doing this and about inspiring people and, and the multi-media sort of media channels through which you do it. 
do you need a bit of a thick skin? Because I've seen, I've seen, for example, online. Heck yes, <coughs> people hate me. Wow, <laughs> hate is gonna hate, as we say. And where do you all get the time? I hate everything. I'm miserable. If I met the hate person, I probably wouldn't be too crazy about you either. But where do you get the energy and time? To hate so much. Wow. I, I, I saw a glorious video of you doing that 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 modern meme of reading hate tweets. That was fun. Back to people. I hate Bill Nye. That guy is so annoying. One of them said, Bill Nye sucks butthole. You paused for a few moments. I There's think no said, evidence of that, yeah. I might add. <laughs> he said, oh, no, I didn't know that I did. And then someone said, I'd rather watch paint dry than listen to Bill Nye. And you turned around and asked. And i got to tell you, have you ever watched paint dry? Let me ask you something. Does it dry from the top first and the bottom later, or does it dry from the bottom first and the top later? You could find out. You could observe it for yourself. Yo, Bill, global, global warming is fake and evolution is a conspiracy. I have to say, I think you're completely wrong on both counts. Uh, I'm sorry you're cluttering up the internet. You need a thick skin, don't you, Bill? Yeah, yeah, but it's but when you uh, when you're passionate about it, and in the case of science, uh, these things are provable. You can learn things for yourself. You can you can paint the wall and look at it and see which does it dry at the top or the bottom, and then speculate as to why that is. And then you could even, if you were motivated, you could get uh, some humidity measuring things, hygrometers. And determine where the moisture goes in the case of latex paint, and and uh, infer why it uh, dries the way it does. People say to me, "I, hey Bill Nye, I heard that hot water freezes faster than cold water. Is that true?" And I say, "Why are you asking me, man? I don't know you, but you're in a civilized society. I bet you have access to a freezer, and, and so you don't need me." You can find this out for yourself. So when you meet people who don't even bother to go that far and choose to hate you, or in this case, me, I, I roll with it. I feel, I feel sorry for them. It's like people I meet with no sense of humor. You know what? They don't even know it. But it's okay. We press on. I saw you up the front of one of the uh, marches for science this yes, year. Yes, in Washington, D.C., the capital of the world's most influential culture. And so in the world of alternative facts, and some people call it an age of anti-science, do you need a thicker skin now than you've ever needed? Well, thicker skin also, I think we have to redouble our efforts, as the saying goes. It's mm. really an extraordinary time in which people are denying what you would traditionally call facts or provable facts. And this is in no one's best interest. You can't, when the ship is sinking, you can't just say to yourself, well, it shouldn't be sinking and, uh, and press on. Pretty soon you're going to have to deal with the sinking ship because you're on it. And the example that is so prominent right now is climate change, hmm. where you have this overwhelming, overwhelming scientific evidence, overwhelming scientific consensus and still this idea that you can deny climate change. Everybody, it's going to catch up with us. This, we all live here. We're not going to Mars to live. There's nothing to eat. There's hardly any water, and you can't breathe. This is it, people. The Earth is all we get. This is a, a beautiful tie-back to your, your wonderful father. The Mars rover carried an invention of yours. And when I read, I, I almost shed a tear when I 
read this and saw it come I love you, man. full circle. W- I get walk, choked up all the time about it. Walk us through this. This is beautiful. Uh, so, well, my father was a prisoner of war, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and he apparently became fascinated with sundials because they had no clocks or watches. And uh, uh, he would put a shovel handle in the soil and watch the shadow go around. This is by his account. You guys, I wasn't there. Well, anyway, I was in a meeting at Cornell University back in the U.S. and uh, about Mars. The famous, if you're into this, Steve Squires was there, Jim Bell. These are Mars scientists. Mm. That's If you look at any pictures from Mars, Jim Bell took it, and the whole program was managed very successfully by Steve Squires, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So they had this device, <clears throat> this fixture, this um, instrument for calibrating the cameras, and it involved casting a shadow. And if those of you who've never stopped to think about this, we're listening to a podcast, but I'm talking about people who are able-bodied, who have uh, eyesight and can see colors. Uh, Go outside. Everybody can tell the difference between daylight and room light. Almost everybody just can sense, well, that's a room light picture, that's a daylight picture. Mm. But most of us can't put our finger on it, why they look different. Well, part of it is the color that comes in from the Earth's sky. The sun is not the only source of light here on the Earth's surface. The sky, and during daytime hours, the sky is this huge source of light. Mm -hmm. So it makes all shadows a little bit blue. Well, on Mars, they're a little bit orange or pink. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at this instrument, and it's casting a shadow, and they got this all these number of pixels they're counting. We got to make that into a sundial! I was not the first guy to suggest it be a sundial, but I was apparently the first guy jumping out of his chair, waving his arms about how great it would be. There were seven of us that worked on it. That circle, your father's love for sundials, and you put a sundial on Mars. Well, I had a role. I had a very small role. It was cool. It is cool. There's three sundials on Mars, on Spirit, Opportunity, and Curiosity rovers, and the Mars 2020 rover will have some sort of uh, photometric or so-called calibration target, cal target. Do you also hold a patent for ballet shoes? Yes. So for those of you who watch the Science Guy show about bones and muscles, bones and muscles, bones and muscles, we were around a bunch of ballet dancers for a couple days or a few hours, and all these young women, all these crazy injuries to their feet. And so I just realized the ballet shoe hasn't changed in centuries. Hmm. So I have a proposal, and once in a while, a ballet shoe company will go, this, let's try that. But then the middle manager gets fired or has a baby or whatever happened, then the whole thing derails. But I'm ready. If you're out there, if you want to help improve the lot of young women ballet dancers, I got an idea for you. So you're like the, the, the Michael Jordan, the Air Jordan of ballet shoes, if this ever comes Exactly. Together. You have crystallized my thoughts. Yes. And and yet, despite you holding a patent for ballet shoes, it was a tragic leg injury that stopped you winning Dancing with the Stars 2013 yes, in the United States. Yes, just walking away with it, dancing away with it. Yes, yeah, so I'm dancing down the street, minding my own business on international television, and my quadriceps tendon just, oh. just popped off. Now, you guys, I didn't know what had happened except... and. Um, I'm just looking here on the desk. Here's a ballpoint pen. Have you ever gotten one of these red hot and then just jabbed it into your thigh? (laughs) 
I I have never done that, <laughs> but I have a sense of what it would be like. Man, that hurt. Wow. Mid routine. Yeah. Well, right at the end, the oh. last couple steps. Oh. And so you know, the my partner Tyne uh, Steckline said to me, "Are you okay?" Nope. <laughs> nope. And you can hear everybody has to wear a microphone the whole flipping time. They want you to wear a microphone when you're taking a shower. It's like it's. <laughs> All the time you have a microphone, and um, it just really hurt, and I, I, I didn't want to leave like that, so I went back on one more week, and you know I got kicked off because I could hardly move. One final little st- stat that people not, might not know about Bill Nye: you make seriously good popcorn, not just good, but well, seriously good. I make it uh, properly, just to say, on a stove top with a pot that has a wire or a pair of wires that that keep the popcorn from sitting on the bottom too long. This is the same technology you see at a movie theater. Uh-huh. And, but, I mean, you guys, there might be somebody who makes better popcorn. I'm not in some popcorn competition. <laughs> but I do enjoy a lot of popcorn, and when I pop it, there are no unpopped kernels. That's a sort of a immediate criterion. And for us in the U.S., you know, you can have mixed feelings about the U.S., but the popcorn is pretty great. On a serious note to finish up, Bill. Because- well, did, that's not serious? <laughs> On an, if possible, even more serious note than the state of U.S. popcorn, the state of U.S. education, and it's a debate we're having in Australia as well, where our results in maths and science seem to be slipping. You say if the U.S. was ranked 17th in the world in track and field, as it has been in some international metrics of education, there'd be a there'd be a national crisis. They'd be throwing billions of dollars at the problem, but it doesn't seem to rile people enough that your education system is is ranked there. This is a, a real passion of yours, isn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, my friend. So this, as I say to people, this is not where you save your money if you're a society. You don't save your money on education. As, you, as we say, you think education's expensive? Try ignorance. Yeah, the alphabet, that's just something they made you learn. That's right. They made you learn it because it's in everyone's best interest to have an educated populace. Algebra is the single most reliable indicator of whether or not someone pursues a career in math and science. It's not clear that it's cause and effect, but it is the best indicator. So everybody, you teach algebra. If you want to remain competitive economically, you teach algebra. So here... In the United States, uh, here again, I mean, is the situation where the very best players, the people at the very top who go to Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, or Caltech, or perhaps more importantly, Cornell University, uh, where I'm an alumnus, (laughs) uh, the people up there do really well. They're still world-class Nobel Prize winning Mm -hmm. bunch. But it's the general populace that doesn't need to... doesn't need to have that level of specialized science education, specialized math education. We just want everybody to be literate about science so that we can make good decisions when it comes to clean water, providing renewable electricity, uh, providing the Internet to everyone on Earth. Those are a bunch of decisions that we have to make as educated voters. And so this is why it makes me crazy than when people want to cut education budgets. And, you know, the United States, and you all probably as outsiders know it better than we ourselves do, is this divided country now where these people support certain aspects of government investment but not others, and education is one of the not others. Bill Nye, 
passionate science communicator, <laughs> ballet shoe designer. Thank you so much for your time today, Bill Nye, the you, science sir. guy. Carry on, Mr. Spencer. Let's change the world. Well, you've been listening to The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer. And the big thank yous have to go to the following. Big Questions was produced by Alex Mitchell, Caroline Pegram and Jamie Show. It was recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Questions.